So I want to continue uh, this morning exploring this quality of equanimity that we explored last time. And last time I gave an overview of some of the qualities of equanimity and uh, pointed to a few different ways to practice equanimity. And so this morning I want to give a review of some of what we covered last time uh, and then go into a little more detail on some of the different ways that we cultivate or practice equanimity and particularly focus on two areas where uh, equanimity can, as a practice or as even a concept, can be confusing. And the first of those is that when we hear about equanimity, which really means having a balanced, non-reactive approach to experience, there are two kind of core issues which come up, come up for many people immediately. The first is, is this some kind of unemotional, non-expressive, statue-like Buddha form, right? Is equanimity this non-reactivity? Where does the heart come in? Where, does the emo- where, where do the emotions come in? This sense of being non-reactive and balanced. Uh, I think one person asked at the end of last time, sounds a little bit like the person whose equanimous is on Prozac. Is that what we're pointing to? And of course, the answer is going to be no. But how do we understand that? What's the, what's the relationship of equanimity to um, deeper emotions and emotion in general? And again, I think there there's, can be a challenge with the very word equanimity, which is not an ordinary English word, right? You know, if we, if we said being balanced, being mentally and emotionally balanced, that, that would convey it a little bit more, right? So the equanimity itself sounds a little, could be, sounds a little bit like maybe a, a trance state or something like that. Yeah. And then the other uh, challenging aspect of equanimity that can come up right away is, what is the, where is the aspect of being responsive? in terms of equanimity. In other words, is equanimity, I'm just balanced and non-reactive and I'm kind of aloof and indifferent to everything. Is that it? And clearly that's not it. And that there's a quality of equanimity which ideally is very responsive. And so equanimity doesn't mean just being, you know, I'm cool and calm, you know, in my meditation while difficult things and, and you know, uh, horrible things are going on in the world, right? Equanimity, there can be a question, what's the relationship of equanimity to action, to response? So those are the two that I'll focus on especially. And then the last part, I'll talk about some further ways of deepening equanimity and, and pointing to some deeper ways of practicing. So that's, that's what, I, what I have in mind. And I, I had some fun preparing a handout for today, which gives some quotations. I don't know if I'll get to those quotations in, in the talk, but I wanted you to have some of those. And I'll, if they uh, are relevant, I'll, I'll bring them up. And then we have the, the uh, directions for practicing uh, equanimity, uh, much like loving kindness, okay? So essentially, uh, equanimity... 
uh, is connected with the word in the original language, the language of the discourses of the Buddha, it means balance. And even the, the word equanimity in English comes from Latin, which means a certain evenness. You know, we have the prefix that's related to equal. It's like treating everything equally and evenly. And in the uh, teachings of the Buddha, it's a very, very central quality to develop. As I mentioned last time, it's uh, mentioned last in some of the primary lists of the core qualities to be developed. It's the last of the paramis or perfections, which include qualities like generosity, loving kindness, wisdom, determination, and so forth. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening, which are the qualities that we, when we cultivate, lead towards having an awake, being an awake being, awake, um, compassionate, non-reactive. And it's the last of those. So the other, those qualities include mindfulness, energy, joy, inquiry, tranquility, concentration. But equanimity is the last one. And so it appears as the last. And I've heard one uh, teacher from Thailand say equanimity is actually very, very close to the sacred when we have a highly developed equanimity. Again, and, and we'll see that it's actually uh, tricky to develop mature equanimity. There are a lot of pitfalls. There are a lot of ways that we can get a little bit off or a little bit stuck, particularly in not having the wisdom connected to the heart and also not having our equanimity connected with being responsive or acting. Those are probably the two main pitfalls. And like any practice though, as we develop a certain quality, we engage in what we might call a process of purification. That's what all of our practice is like that. This isn't just, you know, develop a wonderful quality quickly and keep it going. You know, it's more or less to develop equanimity, we have to see what gets in the way of equanimity. Just like to develop mindfulness, we have to see what gets in the way of mindfulness, which could be our distractedness, our conditioning, what gets in the way of kindness, you know, maybe aspects of my self-centeredness or parts of myself that I haven't, that I haven't worked through. So all of these qualities, as we develop them, are connected with what we could call a process of purification or, or development. Uh, last time I mentioned uh, a number of qualities, and I'll just mention them briefly and, uh, today. But I mentioned, I think, uh, five qualities of equanimity, and then I would add the further two qualities, which I'll go into in more depth, that... Uh, equanimity is integrated with the with compassion and the kind heart, and that equanimity is integrated with responsiveness. The first five that I mentioned last time uh, were were first that equanimity has a certain kind of balance that we have a balance with uh, any particular experience that occurs. This is equanimity in the context of our mindfulness practice equanimity as a factor of wisdom. There's a quality of balance with whatever comes up. And again, the learning is going to occur, especially by seeing where we're not balanced. This is what 
ordinarily happens in mindfulness practice. I'm mindful, I stay with something, I have some unpleasant sensations in my shoulder, and I say, this isn't what I signed up for. This wasn't in the promotional literature at Spirit Rock, that I would meditate and have unpleasant sensations in my shoulder. I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> right? And uh, of course, we, you know, hopefully we stay, but we learn that we can actually be as balanced as wise and possible with unpleasant experiences as well as pleasant experiences. And we're particularly invited to look for where we get knocked off center. They're, they're more obvious with the unpleasant experiences, with the difficult emotions, the difficult mind states, you know, the negative scenarios about what will happen and so forth. But in a way, to develop equanimity, we have to explore all of that in depth. So that's, again, that's a big part of our practice generally, but a practice of equanimity especially. So we, we work with that. We work with um, being present with everything. Um, the second quality is evenness, that we can in a sense have this even relationship to whatever occurs. And again, our conditioning is that we want the pleasant experiences to be there and we don't want the unpleasant experiences to be there. Very, very ordinary conditioning. And so some of what happens is that we learn again to be with the pleasant as well as the unpleasant without being what we could call reactive. And react by reactive, it means with the pleasant, grabbing hold, you know, oh, I'm really calm. Ah, you know, okay. And, and then we think, you know, we think for the next two minutes about how cool it is to be calm and realize that, oh, oh I'm no longer calm. Right? And so we can really, uh, we can notice that grabbing hold and we can notice the pushing away. The pushing away are way more obvious, right? The unpleasant experiences that occur in meditation are way more obvious and the ones that occur in daily life are way more obvious. So when we get to a certain level of maturity in our equanimity practice, we can actually be interested in the ways that we get reactive towards the pleasant as well. It's a little more subtle, right? A little more subtle to notice that. And then there's the teaching uh, that I mentioned last time as one, not, you know, one of the focused ways to practice equanimity is to focus on what are called the eight worldly winds, the eight conditions that tend to blow us around, so to speak. And these are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And so I mentioned last time, one of the very focused ways to practice is to look out for each of these eight and again, we can go a long way simply by being mindful when there's a pleasant experience. Let me be aware of it and notice if I'm tending to grasp. You know, I remember I once you know, had a meditation group where we were studying the dynamics of what happens in our relation to pleasure and pain. And I said, inherently, there's nothing wrong with the pleasant. You know, it can actually have an important role in our practice. The issue is the grabbing hold of the pleasant. And I, and I told the group, it would be perfectly fine next week if we just spent our entire two and a half hours uh, sitting around eating chocolate. No problem. And just exploring the pleasant. And they said, 
We'd like to try that. <laughs> and so we did. We, the next week, people brought in, you know, many, many varieties of chocolate. And we, uh, we sat around eating chocolate and noticing our relationship to the pleasant. And of course, after a while with chocolate, if you eat too much of it, not so pleasant. That's one of the interesting things you can study about pleasant. I'm remembering a, a story I sometimes tell about living in a house, kind of a group house, and there was a woman from Iraq in the house, and uh, often on Saturday nights she would make baklava, and we would have all-you-could-eat baklava. Now. It was very interesting to see the relationship of uh, whether, how the, how can I say this, how the, um, the sense of pleasure from eating baklava changes as you t- eat more pieces of baklava. So it was like, my experience was first piece of baklava, incredibly pleasant. Second piece, still really pretty pleasant. Third, third piece of baklava, starting to move towards the neutral zone. Fourth piece of baklava, edging towards the unpleasant, right? And I think I stopped with four. Um, but you get the point, right? That is, it's actually pretty interesting to explore that. And so that teaching of evenness and looking at the uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, you know, good reputation, bad reputation, uh, praise and blame is a really powerful way to study equanimity. We could do that, you know, for a week, two weeks. We'd learn a lot by really going there. The third quality I wanted to mention was a kind of unshakability that equanimity increasingly has this way that there's something in us which doesn't get shaken so much, which can be there more and more with what arises. And again, some of the people we probably most revere for their equanimity could have an unshakability even in really hard circumstances. You know, think of people who comes to mind as sort of manifesting an unshakability even in really difficult, very hard situations. Anyone come to mind for you? Yeah. Mahler. Nelson Mandela. We might think 27 years in prison, right? And the sense is that there was a kind of balance there, right? Even in pretty rough conditions. Anyone else come to mind? Obama? Yeah, in many ways, yeah. It doesn't mean the equanimity was perfect or fully mature, but there's a certain amount of that there, a certain amount of, of uh, unshakability, right? Anyone else? John Lewis. John Lewis, you know, the uh, congressperson who was involved with the civil rights movement, and I think at what, at the Selma March was very brutally beaten, right? And you, know, you, you see that a lot if you see the films of the civil rights movement, right? You see a lot of equanimity there you know, in just very ordinary people. So uh, there's that quality of unshakability, which is really uh, crucial. And I think develops in us the more we practice equanimity. We can feel that, you know, that, again, it's it's relative. We might feel, oh, 
a year or two ago, I would have been knocked around by this, and now I'm not. That's moving in this direction, right? That we can know. When we do this practice, that will develop. It will develop very naturally, simply because we're studying what knocks us off center. We're studying it. And again, the whole assumption and finding of our practice is that when we give careful attention to our experience, we tend to work through our conditioning and we tend to not be so caught by things that we used to be caught by. Simply by sustained careful attention over the weeks or months. You know, that's the, that's the core assumption and core finding that we have with this practice. There's a, a very nice expression of this kind of unshakability that, that I heard from, I, did a, I once did an interview with Joanna Macy, you know, the, uh, who's a, a friend and teacher, mentor, as well as a, a colleague sometimes, uh, who's in her late 80s now, lives in, lives in Berkeley, uh, kind of a spiritual environmental activist and uh, teacher, teaches often at, at Spirit Rock. She said this was, uh, this was one version of equanimity that she gave in kind of an ecological context. If we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. <laughs> we are four and a half billion years old <laughs> in terms of the origins of life and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. So, you know, if you have problems with one of your friends or someone, say, act your age. You're 15 billion years old. Uh, every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. Have you contemplated that? Pretty amazing. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them seeing them as a companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story, right? I am just part of this great story of the flow of life from 15 billion years, right? This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're part of the story. That's another way to contemplate equanimity. And it can give more of that sense of unshakability. There's a, a sort of a fourth quality of equanimity, which is understanding. That there's a quality of wisdom and really seeing causes and conditions. I mentioned that last time. That part of equanimity is seeing clearly. It's having wisdom. It's maybe seeing that something that we are really upset about, maybe something interpersonal. You know, we could see why almost that had to happen. And again, it doesn't mean we're not responsive, but it means we can hold things with more understanding and maybe more compassion. Uh, From Longfellow, the poet, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we really could see someone, 
or see a situation. Again, we would want to be responsive, but there could be more understanding there. There's a fifth quality, which I mentioned last time also, of faith, that we can have increasingly a sense of confidence. Equanimity, as we develop it, is connected with confidence, that we can sort of have the workability of things, that things are, uh, I can work with this difficult experience, whatever happens. And I was thinking of, uh, yeah, I was thinking of experiences, um, yeah, just many, many times of having that sense of confidence that let me go forward into a challenging situation. And it's really a confidence which builds on having worked in the past with our practice with difficult states, difficult emotions, difficult thoughts. The practices that uh, I gave last time were several. That one of them was just to work with our ordinary mindfulness practice and equanimity. That our ordinary mindfulness practice, when we keep doing it, develops equanimity because we're really invited to be with this, with balance and awareness. Okay, next moment. Okay, be with this. And some, most things are not so dramatic, but sometimes we have things that are harder. And our ordinary mindfulness practice will help us to be with that. We can also focus a second way of practicing, really focus on difficult emotions and thoughts and say, you know, maybe to have the intention in our practice in our daily lives, I'm going to really focus on when, I, when difficult emotions and thoughts come up and try to be with them with mindfulness and be present with them. And again, I gave, last time I gave the important um, qualifier that when we have difficult thoughts and emotions come up, we can be mindful of them when they're in the workable range. When they're too much, the best thing to do is to come back to balance. Okay? So we can work with difficult emotions and thoughts as our intention. We can also focus on reactivity. We can look at when do I get reactive? When do I grab hold? When do I push away? That could be a third way of practicing. And then the fourth way of practicing was working with the uh, eight worldly winds, pleasure and pain, gain and loss and so forth, and really taking those as areas to, to focus on. You know, as we do this and as we develop more insight, we, we increasingly build a kind of inner center which has more resilience and which is increasingly uh, manifesting the qualities I mentioned. More unshakability, at least unshakability in certain circumstances, right? <laughs> okay, I'm more and more unshakable here and over there, I don't know, right? But we develop that, these qualities develop. It's not always linear, but we develop more of these qualities of the uh, qualities of balance, evenness, unshakability, understanding, faith, and so forth. And we develop them more. The, the uh, further practice that I brought in at the end of the meditation is having the sense of equanimity as a heart quality. And I think this is very important because it really, it's one of the places that we really start connecting equanimity with the heart. And I mentioned that that is a, a danger with our equanimity practice that will, as it were, have... T- too much on the wisdom side, not enough on the kindness side. That's a danger. That's a danger of meditation practice generally. And so 
when we work with the, the phrases, a phrase, again, the one I work with is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And very helpful to first do some loving kindness or compassion practice. And then we can, we could work with this just for 10 minutes a day and we'll have an impact because there's, again, uh, and we can work with it by pointing that quality of equanimity towards a neutral person. It's said, traditionally, that's where you start because it's supposed to be easiest. Because, you know, someone who I don't really care about, it's easier to be equanimous about them, (laughs) right? And then we also then start bringing it towards people we care about and then also towards ourselves. And again, my experience often is when I do the practice, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Uh, often I go, my mind goes to things where, there, where they are this way and either there's something there that I don't like or there's something that I like that's not there. Right? And the mind sort of sits with that and then sitting with it, I find that a kind of balance starts developing more. Oh yeah, this is true, right? This is true. You know, and if I have any reactivity or resistance or resentment, it will come out. So again, a lot of these practices like loving kindness and equanimity um, have sometimes aspects of purification. It's not just a linear development of a beautiful quality, but we actually work through ways that we're not equanimous. And you could see it sometimes coming up just right in the moment, just for a little while, like that. And of course, if there's something bigger for us, it might, might stay there for a while. And so this is a further way. There, you know, these are, in a way, uh, at least five different ways of practicing equanimity. And, and there's some others as well that I'll, that I'll talk about at the end that take us into deeper practice, yet deeper practice. But I wanted to mention these two areas where, which are particularly challenging. One of them is connecting equanimity, which is really a wisdom practice, with the kind heart and with the, the open heart. That again, the, you, you know, we remember that in the teachings on equanimity and in the teachings of loving kindness, it's said that there are Uh, prototypical ways that we get a little bit off or stuck. And these are traditionally called the near enemies. So loving kindness or being kind has the near enemy or the kind of the occupational hazard of leading to uh, grasping or being possessive about a person or a situation. That's a danger, right? And the occupational hazard of compassion is having a sense of pity, which means that I feel... I'm superior. You know, if we're in the helping professions, we might find that sometimes. True compassion isn't really distanced. It's more or less saying this person is in a way just like me. It's not saying I'm better than and this poor person over there. Again, there's some compassion, but it's not mature. And that's traditionally taken as the, the occupational hazard. Again, the occupational hazard of equanimity is to be indifferent. It's not really to be caring. You know, I am, oh yes, I see the comings and goings of everything. I see persons, different people's conditioning. Ah yes, I see why they suffer. Ah yes, I see why the world is as it is. Ah yes, I have a very well-developed intellectual understanding, right? And you see how that could be, have some aspects of equanimity, but be distorted because it's more, the caring's not there. 
And so part of, I think, focused work with equanimity would be to integrate, in a way, wisdom with the heart. And this is, I think, a challenge, both culturally and in the context of Buddhist practice, that in our culture, we often don't make it very clear how we can connect wisdom and the kind heart, right? That we have a lot of traditions where there is sort of a split between, you know, the kind heart and clarity, wisdom. You know, we have sense sometimes of it, you know, people being intellectually very developed, but the heart's not there. It's kind of an archetype in our culture. And, and historically, there's often been this split between the emotions and the mind. You know, you look, if you look at Western culture, you'll see that that's been there for a long time. And um, you can find that in different ways. Uh, this is from the philosopher David Hume. Reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. <laughs> so he would, this is a philosopher saying, reason, you know, being rational and being emotional are really different. And we should separate them out. And we should only follow the emotions. Interesting, interesting passage. And from the poet Robert Frost, ah, when to the heart of man was it ever less a treason to yield with grace to reason. He's basically saying, you know, we should stay with the kind heart. You know, and there's so that you often you often get uh, a split. So you have a, we have splits in our culture between thinking and emotion. A lot of this gets translated into gender, doesn't it? Right? Men are more thinking. Women are often thought to be more emotional or more carry that. You know, and that's there's a lot of evidence that that you know that there's a fair amount of conditioning that way. You know that uh, one of the stories I remember is a little bit sad to say, but do you remember uh, after 9/11, President George W. Bush was asked, "How have you felt? What's been your emotional life after 9/11?" And his answer was, "I don't uh, handle that area. Talk to Laura, his wife." Right? That was that was his response, right? And. Um, and it's interesting, on our loving-kindness retreats, I've been connected with loving-kindness retreats every January for um, about uh, 13 years, 13, 14 years. We always have 80 to 85% women. What does that say? Right? These are the retreats where we most kind of open the heart. What's it mean? I don't know. I'm, I haven't tried to interpret it too much, but... I'll say that the, uh, the, the men that we get at the retreat tend to fall in two categories. One are the people who've actually really developed their kind hearts, and the others are people who th- are men who think that it's a really good idea to develop the kind heart, but they're not, they're not there, right? And it's very poignant, actually, to work with them. So there are gender aspects of this. You know, this, there's this split between the mind and emotions, right? Between thinking and emotions. It's very, it's very uh, big in our culture. You know, and I was thinking another aspect of that, I, I remember, do you remember, anyone remember the book, uh, You Just Don't Understand? It was a book, it was a book uh, tabulating the research 
on interpersonal communication between men and women. Uh, and they found that in the research that when there's an issue in a relationship, a couple and so forth, who brings up the fact that there's an emotional issue? 80% of the time it's the woman who brings it up, right? So, okay, I rest my case. Um, so I guess that's really pointing to a complicated split between wisdom and the, and the emotions. And I think we can heal that partly in our practice of equanimity. That as we develop this, we can really um, find ways to have the uh, kind heart and wisdom be together. And it, but it's also tricky from the point of view of Buddhist practice. Because in Buddhist practice, the very language of wisdom and compassion seem different. When you, when you look to uh, the language of uh, loving kindness and so forth, it's all about, I wish you well. We're talking about persons. I wish you well. May you have, may this occur. May you be happy and so forth. And the language of equanimity is everything's happening according to causes and conditions. You know, it's like loving kindness, I say, I wish that you're well. And then equanimity practice, it says, no matter what you wish for, kid, things are as they are. Right? And so do you, do you feel a tension? Even in the practice, even in Buddhist context, there's a tension. I think you kind of resolve the tension by just keeping both of them happening. One of my Tibetan teachers said, if you do two practices more or less around the same time as each other, they will mingle. And I think there's something to that. Logically, it's not so easy to work out. The, it's almost like the heart, or is that the philosopher Pascal says, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows not. Do you know that quotation? It's almost like the languages are a little bit different. The language of the heart, the language of wisdom. But I think with the equanimity practice, we, we do them together. And it's really important in this light that in the, uh, in the tradition, the four qualities of the kind heart are, are brought together. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And in a way, we have to develop um, all of them for any one of them to be mature. If we don't develop equanimity, our loving kindness will tend to be distorted. If we don't have some equanimity with our compassion, it will tend to be distorted. There's a beautiful uh, passage from uh, a great uh, writer and meditator named Nayana Ponikatera, who is a, an early Western uh, monk in Sri Lanka. I want to read this. It's a nice summary of the relationship because one of the beautiful teachings is that as we do loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, they all uh, intermingle with each other. This is a way to practice. Do compassion practice, do wisdom practice, do a lot of both of them, they'll mingle. That's the short guidance, right? And so this is Nayanapanakatera. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of these four states. But it should never be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love, compassion, and joy, or that it leaves them behind. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade equanimity. Love or loving kindness gives to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and its fervor. 
Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference. Joy gives to equanimity a mild serenity. Equanimity and root, uh, rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for all four of these states. It gives compassion an even unwavering courage. It's equanimity is perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity, equanimity is not dull, heartless, and frigid. Its perfection is not due to emotional emptiness, but to fullness of understanding. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead, cold stone, but the manifestation of its highest strength. So this is something to aspire for. You know, again, I mentioned last time that often the highest development of our practice is to have uh, high levels of both wisdom and the kind heart come together. And that, that can come through equanimity. The other place where equanimity is challenging is in the fact that we may, in falling to indifference, not be responsive, not be active, not, you know, not see ourselves as responding, but be aloof and off, you know, in our own private world, right? That's a danger of equanimity. And, you know, I think we could express this in a few different ways. Equanimity can look like, when it's distorted, it can look like complacency or resignation. It can look like being privileged, you know? I'm privileged, I don't have to deal with suffering. I'm really balanced, right? It can look like that, right? And so the... Um, I think the corrective is really just to keep working with response. See if there's that tendency. Some of us will have the tendency to err on one side, you know, or err on the other. I think, you know, for me, I think that sometimes has been an issue in my equanimity. It can sometimes be just, oh, I'm just apart from everything, watching the show, right? And so for me, it would be, it's often important really to come back and to make that effort to respond. And it's just, I think, quite, quite important to, to remember that. Um, there's a beautiful line from a, a Hindu teacher named the Sargadatta. He says this. It's this combination of the wisdom and the love. He says, love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So again, the message seems different, but he connects them. It's very, very beautiful. This is from uh, um, an old friend of mine who died, I don't know, about six or eight years ago, Robert Aitken Roshi, a Zen teacher. And he wrote a book called Zen Master Raven. And in the book, there's a character named Al. And Al is asked, what is right view? Right view means, you know, wisdom, basically. And this is his answer. Or no, actually, Al, asked the, Al in the book asked the question, what is right view? And the answer comes from Brown Bear. This is what Brown Bear said. You know, you know. 
We're in it together, and we don't have much time. So that's the kind of expression of, of compassion. So I wanted to just finish with um, one pointer towards how this practice of equanimity gets still deeper. I think, you know, the practices we've mentioned really are the practices of a lifetime, aren't they? Right? To really keep on staying with what challenges us, to focus on when we get reactive, to develop that sense of balance, maybe to see who inspires us to, to work with that sense of balance. And there's, there's a way that as we deepen the practice, we can have increasingly a kind of awareness which gets big, which gets in a way vast. And we can be with, uh, we can be increasingly with phenomena and with whatever is happening from a place which is very vast but also very responsive. And I wanted to end with an expression of this and just see if this resonates with you. This is from the great Thai teacher Achan Cha who um, has a wonderful way of talking about our, our awareness getting bigger and bigger so it can hold more and more but still very much expressive of compassion and able to be responsive. So this is Achan Cha. This is, this is a, a, um, a practice directive towards what he called taking the one seat. Okay? Just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. So these are meditation instructions, by the way. Okay. Open the doors. Okay. Open your senses. Let, let whatever happens happen. See who comes to visit. Okay. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptation and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will come. So again, there's a lot of emphasis on being really able to be with things coming and going. And again, we train with this, train in this way in our meditation, and then increasingly bring it to daily life. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as that guest comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors keep on coming? Speak with them here and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. It's a vision. It's a vision of uh, equanimity. That is by Achan Cha. Achan is a word that simply means teacher in Thai. And he was the teacher of Jack Kornfield, Achan Samedo, uh, several of the teachers who teach here, 
Tanisara Kitasaro, and uh, I studied with him also, um, briefly. <laughs> um, he came once to the U.S., and I got to uh, study with him. Uh, and he died in 1991. Yeah. So any anything come up? Any I had I had some poems and things I didn't read, but um, I wanted to get to the interactive part because it's often for me the uh, what I like the best to really uh, talk together about. Uh, how we practice, and again, we could we could take a year on equanimity. You know, we could focus on okay, how do I work with difficult emotions? How do I work with anger, sadness, fear? That would be part of equanimity, right? To learn how to be with all the different parts of experience and learn to be skillful with them. Not easy, right? And that's that's but that's part of the uh, curriculum when we take this on. It can take a while, you know. Other, any reflections or questions? We have a microphone, so we have one here and then one up front to my right. Your, <clears throat> your baklava story reminded me of a, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a time in my life of a few years ago, maybe, maybe about five years ago, maybe six, and, and I was going through a very lovely equanimous time yeah and i noticed that and i appreciated it and then i found myself one day i remember this because i thought it was so ridiculous feeling like well geez i go out to spirit rock i learn all these things i don't really have anything to practice it on because nothing's going wrong yeah yeah (laughs) and it was as though i was dissatisfied with being really very content, mm-hmm. and then guess what? <laughs> your your prayers Chinese, were answered. Yeah, the old Chinese <laughs> curse: may you get what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. I what? Yeah. yeah, may I may I have interesting but not too difficult ways to learn. <laughs> yeah, but it really uh, what this is. Um, I haven't said it quite so clearly, but a lot of this is the willingness to be with what's not so comfortable. You know, we have difficult ideas, difficult experiences. Um, and can I make those uh, an object of my mindfulness and awareness? That's, we often don't want to do that, right? We often want, oh, this isn't going so well. Let's just instantly, kind of like in the, you know, the wish to the genie with the lamp, please change this. <laughs> Right? But there's actually the transformative power of awareness requires that we actually take the step to investigate, to be with what's hard, which is not easy, right? Even if we've done it for years, it's not easy to go into what's challenging, right? You know, I, I'm kind of disturbed, I'm a little bit off-center, I'm complaining, I'm judgmental towards this person. Can I investigate that, be present with it? Yeah, again, it doesn't mean being passive at all. I may investigate that relationship and say, I need to talk to that person. But can I move out of the reactivity? Yeah, please. Uh, continuing with the metaphor, the chair in the room and, yeah. and visitors coming in, the visitor who most 
disrupts my life these days yeah. is anger from um, evil things that are done in our world. Yeah. And this is often an issue I have when I hear you and others speak yeah. here at Spirit Rock because I think some of that anger, thank God yeah. that I have it and others have it and yeah. hopefully it spurs us on to, to fight for the betterment of all. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you greet that visitor in a way that doesn't overwhelm you? Yeah. Um, what's been helpful for you? <laughs> uh, Sorry to put you on the spot. Think, well, it's okay. Things that I do that Hope you're not angry. Pleasure. Pardon me? <laughs> Hopefully not angry. <laughs> things that I do that give me pleasure, nature, music, things like yeah. that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. You know, um, when I did the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, you know, and a lot of it was about combining service and activism with inner practices. And so anger is a big topic there. I have a chapter on anger in the book. And it was really interesting because I researched a lot. I read, you know, what did Dr. King say about anger? And I found there were really amazing... Uh, insights and writings about anger from Dr. King, Dorothy Day, Gandhi, you can find, you know, Mandela. You can find, um, you can find interesting passages. Dr. King, for example, said, the constructive channeling of anger is at the heart of our movement. Right? That's, that's, uh, and yet it's, uh, but he, he did say channeling, and you can hear in his voice that I, I like to think, I hear in his voice, I hear the energy of anger has not been suppressed. It's been transformed. That's what I hear. And so how do we do that? Because we can, when we study anger, we can know, and studying anger means to bring it, you know, have it be there in our mindfulness when it's there, see what it's about. Sometimes we can deliberately bring up anger in our meditation, even if it's not there to start with, and bring it up and try to just be with it, see what it's about. Generally, um, you know, generally to be skillful with anger often takes to be with it enough so one can go to the underlying pain that's driving the anger. And that will tend to transform the anger and have it be more leading to a compassionate response, which still has the energy. But anger can anger by itself can go in a lot of different directions. It can obviously go towards hatred. It can go towards being incredibly judgmental, polarizing, polarized, right? Um, I would say that if anger isn't worked with skillfully, it's actually not going to be helpful. And I think one of the challenges of people who are trying to respond to what's happening in the world is to work skillfully with their anger. You know, and it's, it's a huge issue because a lot of the people who are out there have not done that. Right? And so um, one can work with it internally, one can work with it in, in groups in various ways. It's important to feel it and express it, but in some way to, to work with it and to watch the narratives that come about. You know? And so... I, again, I think the key is being with it so that one actually touches what's driving anger. A lot of psychotherapists say that anger is a cover emotion, that it covers some other kind of pain. So I, I found this when I look at anger in relation to events. It, it can cover over the pain, maybe at injustice, right? 
But when you're in touch with that pain, it's a, your action is going to be a little bit different than when you're just totally consumed by the anger that's going to a narrative of, I'm right, they're wrong. Right? The other thing about anger is it tends to obscure one's own complicity. Right? You know, and one becomes self-righteous. Right? So we could, you could see there's a lot to say there, but the main thing, I think, is to work with it uh, using the tools. And then the other, just the last thing, the other thing you said, I think was very important that when we're working with anger or any difficult emotion or any difficult thought patterns, it's really very helpful to do things which bring about more balance in the mind, like be with beauty, be in the forest, in the mountains, by the ocean, be with art, be with music, that there is, be do the um, loving kindness practices, the compassion, the joy, the equanimity, do things which bring you a sense of balance and uh, fullness. And that those are, I think, if we're seriously working with anger, we have to also be fine ways of renewal. You know, I think of, again, thinking of Dr. King, he would always go, for him, it was to go to the black church, right? And he would find, you know, he would find renewal there in prayer and in singing and so forth. Yeah. With regard to anger, I think it's actually kind of a, it could be a useful thing. It can trigger you awake so that you know that there's a problem. I don't know. Because the the whole idea of, um, oh, uh, no matter what I wish for, things are what they are. I think you have to, before you actually go there, you know, seek another opinion about a medical condition or talk to the person that's bothering you or all those proactive things that you don't want to just roll over. You don't want to... I mean, my fear is that people would just roll over and go, okay, whatever. You know, and so that's, that's, right. that's, that's right. That's nice. I'm glad you said that. You know, just saying whatever is a misunderstanding of equanimity. <laughs> but, but the key with, uh, with the phrases, I think, is that if, I think it's really important if one is doing equanimity practice with that phrase, also to, right before it, do loving kindness and or compassion practice. So they're, they have that sense of mingling together with the messages being a little bit contrary, right? A little, seemingly a little bit in contradiction, but when they mingle, something comes out of it. Yeah, please. Nancy. So the passage that you read that I really liked, it's, it's evocative for me of Rumi's poem, The Guest House. Yeah. And it's welcome all who come. And, and I've found it, it's a practice that I now go into just without preparing for it, but I imagine a dinner table along yeah. the theme of the guest house and welcoming everybody, like everybody has to be at the table. Yeah. But then I start imagining who I'm going to seat next to each other. Yeah. So just like if there's two unruly little brothers, I might put somebody calming in real life in between the two brothers at the right. table. So like if anger's welcome to the table, I also start to... Would I seat anger next to integrity or next to courage? You know, yeah. and, and just Beautiful. it really gives me a place to deepen and truly embrace wow. all of that. Without you should, and should make a video of that. <laughs> that. No, it's a beautiful thing. It reminds me of, you know, my friend Ruth Gendler did a book called The, the Book of Qualities, right? I think they made a play out of that in Seattle, right? They made a play. Ruth Gendler has a beautiful book that she did I owned just a little bit out of college um, that was had like 60 different qualities like, like compassion, joy, anger, whatever, and personified them and told their stories. 
Yeah, so you can mold that, but the, a great idea to have a dinner table. Okay, who should we sit anger next to? Now let's put anger next to... Just to add a bit, I also think who gets to help in the kitchen, who's <laughs> allowed to go up. I mean, I can work on it as much as I want, but it really yeah. helps me yeah. approach it with truly welcoming everybody, but having my boundaries and stuff. Yeah, but I like that because it's really... It's really a great way to even to think of our meditation practice. There's anger here. Who else do I want in my inner party? Right? Okay, I think I want a little bit of beauty. I want to have the mix with beauty, anger, mindfulness, and compassion. Okay, let's, okay I'll send out my Evites, you know? <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Please. Because, okay, one person here and then one. Yeah. Uh, should we go to you and then on this this side? Okay, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is uh, what's happening in the world is perfect for everything you're talking about. Yeah. I, I certainly share the piece about anger because I'll start out with, okay, I can handle this. I can do this. I'm okay. And then, oh my God, no, not that. You know, and just feels like then it's try- just bouncing back and forth between the emotional upset and frustration and then trying to calm down, which sometimes feels like I need to shut it all out. Right, right. And the biggest trick is how to find the right amount of action where I'm not feeling completely overwhelmed, like I should respond to everything that's yeah. upsetting me. And it, it just feels like it's the whole world right now is a practice in trying to find equanimity amongst all these different Right, things. right. And how to, how to uh, set boundaries so one's not taking in too much information. What's the appropriate amount? You know, how, how should I act? Can I be selective? Yeah, there's one thing after another. I mean, I just, I was pretty impacted. Having spent five weeks last summer in uh, Israel and traveled to the Palestinian territories twice, I know that, you know, I probably has happened during the time of our, our session, but the U.S. declaring moving its uh, uh, embassy to Jerusalem will set out, you know, it would just be horrific. You know, I, I'm, and I'm concerned for people I know there, right? And places I, places I visited, you know, both in Israel and in the Palestinian territory. So it's, you know, one thing after another, like you say right now. And not being, and just one more thing, not being hard on myself for not doing enough. Right. That, that's, I know, is not yeah. skillful. But yeah, I think, you know, I, w- I was teaching a lot on this in the last few months because I was, I was traveling some and visiting places and a lot of them asked me to do weekend retreats or all-day events, connecting inner practice with what's happening in the world. And, you know, I, I came up with about 15 guidelines for, for working with that. Maybe I, I haven't, I don't think I presented that here. Maybe I can do that sometime. Uh, but, you know, there, there are a lot of them. I think I'll just mention one or two that come to mind right now. One of them is that uh, community and staying connected is really important. Watching the tendency to be isolated. You know, and there's some really, there's some really good uh, materials out there. You know, I've been reading Naomi Klein, a uh, very, very good recent book. And there are a lot of, lot of very good materials. So I think we had, maybe last one was over here. Okay. And then we'll finish up, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, anger. Um, I don't 
necessarily see myself as an angry person or a jealous person, but this morning I woke up out of a really fitful dream uh, about my sister, and I just hated her, and I was jealous of her, and I couldn't stop hating her. Yeah. And it was just interesting to me that in I'm studying compassion and all this in my waking hours, and then I have this dream that's so hateful and so vengeful and so jealous. Yeah, you're doing great. meaning stuff's coming to the surface remember I talked about the purification process guess what where does a certain amount of that occur not pleasant no I mean I know this partly from having taught the loving kindness retreat for a lot of years where people are really developing the kind heart the dreams they have people come to me in the morning and report their dreams terrible they're awful terrible you know, we have you know we have axe murderers among us. We, <laughs> I haven't I haven't you know, tried to kill her yet, but yeah. Well, um, any case, um, yeah, I would I I would tend to watch out for overinterpreting it, but but I I would see that things come up like that, and of course you can, you know, we haven't talked much about dreams here over the years, have we? It's it's a real interest of mine. Probably, how many of you are really interested in dreams? Okay, I, I, I love exploring dreams. I haven't. It's not a big part of traditional practice. It is in Tibet, you know, you know, which I've studied some of the Tibetan methods. But um, maybe, maybe somehow we've got what we have a few, a few possible themes for next time. But I think, uh, yeah, just to, um, just to know that, and you know, if any of those feelings are there in daily life, where we feel like we're just really stuck with difficult emotions towards someone. Remember always, I think, that the uh, investigation of difficult states presumes that we're fairly balanced and that it's workable. And we really have to continually have that clear distinction between when it's workable and when it's just too much. And when it's too much, we can't really say, now is the time to be mindful. Then the time is to do what's necessary to come back to more balance. You know, like to, yeah, go go to beauty, be with music, do something which really calms you or something. That's a really important distinction because the mindfulness of the challenging states really can only work when we have some degree of balance with them, which some can often be there a lot. Okay, so let's just finish by inviting you if you feel called to continue with equanimity practice, I can tell, I think Sylvia will be here the next few weeks, I can tell her that we've been exploring equanimity and see what she wants to do. But I would invite us, if we feel called, to take on some kind of equanimity practice for the next week and see if that's there for you. See what your intention is coming out of our morning together. And maybe it's in one of the kinds of equanimity practice, just to have the intention, let me just be balanced with whatever comes up, one form. Another is to focus on having some extra effort when there's something challenging or when we're reactive or working with the eight winds, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Or maybe working with the phrases that we did at the end of the silent period. So see what the intention is.
And then we close by the traditional dedication of merit. And then I'll put my hands like this. You don't have to, but if you want to, you can. This is the traditional way that we offer the fruits of our time together to ourselves, to each other here in the hall, and then out in the world to all other beings. May the fruits of our time be of benefit ultimately to all beings, which always can be remembered as including us. So thank you. And thank you for the ideas for future sessions too. Maybe we should do a session on anger. Okay, thank you. If you can put away your chairs, so that's very much appreciated. Thank you.